Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Shop Talk Show. We have two awesome sponsors for you. One of them is Delicious Brains, who have this product called uh, WPDB Migrate Pro, which is an awesome product that keeps your database, like if you're developing locally, your WordPress database, in sync with your live one and vice versa, and however, whichever direction you want to go with that which is pretty darn cool. We'll tell you more about that later in the the show. And uh, 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 the Environments for Humans, our longtime sponsor, are doing the Craft CMS Summit. So the the URL there is craftcmssummit.com. It's a one-day online conference. Uh, 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 The price is usually $179, but individual tickets are now just $99 plus 20% off if you use the coupon code SHOPTALK. So we'll tell you more about both those things later in the show. But for now, let's kick things off. Listener, you're listening to another episode of the Shop Talk Show, a podcast about front end web design development and probably all mentioned video games. And at some point, Dave, this is Dave Rupert. With me is Chris Coyle. Hello, everybody. And we have us with us, Nicole Domeninga's Hello, Nicole. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yay. Um, it's pronounced uh, Dominguez. Dominguez. I it was just yeah. a stutter city. <laughs> Chris, Chris is pretty good at the I'll tell you what happened. Last names. <laughs> a shh. B I, I forgot um what both the sponsors were at the last minute and was doing while I was talking. I was deftly controlling my keyboard and mouse inputs my computers ah. to get the, the data on them. And I feel like I pulled it off, but then it shook my brain loose. I'm sorry about that. No, it's okay. Nicole Dominguez. Welcome. Are you in uh, <laughs> Brooklyn? Thank you. Are you, are you, are you hail from Brooklyn? Um, yeah, I live in Williamsburg. Currently I am in Chinatown, but yes, the Brooklyn's. <laughs> Brooklyn. Do, uh, do you ride a fixed gear bicycle? Um, <laughs> Um, Do you I only eat artisan organic uh, bread. No, actually, surprisingly, I'm complete like opposite opposite of like hipster. Like, I love all of, like the anti like our neighborhood is not that gentrified yet. It's so, like I love like eating like real Hispanic food and like not riding bicycle. And I used to own a bicycle that it got stolen, but it wasn't even fixed gear. It was like a normal bike. So okay, good. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a beard. Uh, no beard. No, no beard. beard. I was going to ask what beard oil you're using. Okay. All right. We'll skip. We'll skip that. <laughs> Scratch out that whole section of the show. Sawhorse Media. That's the yeah. that's the place, right? It's a, it looks like a 10-person team over there. And your title is the Senior Product Designer and Front End Developer. Yeah. I do everything there that <laughs> has to do with design and development. So, um. Yeah, just to give you the basic overview of our company, we have two products. One of them is called MacRack. It's a platform for PR people and journalists to connect with each other. 
The other one is called the Shorty Awards. It's uh, an annual award show that honors the best of social media. So the best on Twitter, best on Vine, best on YouTube. We get to honor them just like the Oscars. Um, and yeah, we're a 10-person team. I basically do all the front-end development as well as all the product design, and I oversee the creative and branding and all the other kind of stuff. Wow. So some of your work that you do is for these internal products and events and stuff, and then and some of it is for clients and stuff? No, we don't have any clients. No, client-free. Yes, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. So this, this muckrack thing is like, let's say I write for some publication and I actually want to talk to a, a PR person, a marketer or something from somewhere, I can muckrack helps me get in touch with that person and possibly vice versa? Yeah, um, you kind of hit the nail on the head. If you're a journalist and you want to be pitched to, I find that Muckrack is the best place to do that because we don't allow people to spam journalists. We just give them the tools to contact them. In addition, we build a lot of tools for PR people. So like reporting tools, alerting tools, uh, monitoring tools, all that kind of stuff. So it kind of works both ways. I imagine once you're like, if you're a PR person or or like a publisher or whatever, the second somebody has your email, that's like a worst case scenario. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> because then a hundred people have your email and cause it got sold and then you're getting all kinds of spam right. junk. Gotta be right. careful with the emails. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. So we have an internal pitching tool and we give people advice on how to pitch a journalist. Well, nice, nice. Oh, and then the Shorty Awards, cool. which probably more people have heard of the Shorty Awards than have heard of Sawhorse Media in a way, right? It's yeah. Just, right? Yeah, but for sure. You do the design for it and stuff. And like you said, it's like, whatever, what would you call it? The Oscars of, of social media? Yeah, it's it's super exciting. And it's awesome to like work with social media as a whole and all these wonderful people that make it what it is today. And yeah, it's it's just a super fun time. Nicole, while we have you here, I've noticed uh, Shop Talk show is not nominated this year. Is, <laughs> is there a mistake? Or uh, I'm I'm just trying to figure it out. But uh, hey, you know, feel free to escalate that in your organization. Um, it's not a mistake. So the way that our competition worked um, in 2014 was that anyone can nominate another person, but that doesn't mean that you will be you know in the running. And it kind mm-hmm. of works on the number of votes that you get. So someone would have had to nominate the show and then you would have to have like campaigned and get and gotten people to vote for you and then that would have moved you up in the ranks to be a finalist. So it's but, pure yeah. it's all about peer voting. Right. So I mean that might change next year, so we'll see. But yeah, right. that's the way it worked in the past. Well emoji I'm of sorry. the year. <laughs> There's, yeah, there's even like a subreddit of the year. I'm really excited about that. Nice. That's kind of interesting. Pin subreddits against each other for domination. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I God. It. I don't know who I'd vote for for the, for the emoji of the year. I'm leaning towards what are the our w- options. Pizza 100. Okay. Mm. You don't I'm like the 100? 100. I'm going 100, there's I think. Blowing a kiss. I the like the senorita. Yeah. Oh, she doesn't care. That one is amazing. Strolls across the screen. It looks like she has (laughs) slipped on a banana peel. Yes. (laughs) 
Okay, uh, that's a that's some fun stuff. So um, we have a, a question that maybe we'll we'll do more about you, but one of the questions leads right into this stuff. So I thought it would be interesting. Stephen uh, Petre writes in Nicole, uh, you began your descent into front end web development while working as a web designer, right? I'm curious what steps you took to move from canvas to code. So I guess first of all, is he right? Were you a, a designer first and a developer second? Um, it's really funny because it's not the case. I started coding before I even touched Photoshop. So back in the day, like eight years ago, um, is when I started teaching myself HTML and CSS. And I kind of saw it as like an amazing way to just express yourself via the computer, um, and on the internet. And then a few months later, I picked up, um, Photoshop and started teaching myself more about design. Oh, that's great. So the code came first and then design came second. Where would, do you have no idea where Steven got this idea? Or, um, I, well, I think maybe some of it is that I didn't start calling myself a front-end developer until like maybe a year or two ago just because um, I didn't see markup as front-end development. I thought it was just like web design. But yeah. obviously now like I see more like it's definitely more considered front-end development. So yeah, it's not a crazy idea. Yeah, that's on a on a given day. What's kind of your wheelhouse? Do you feel like you're in you know, like constantly in code or constantly in Photoshop? Um, well, the thing is that I love code. Like, I don't think I could ever do a job if I couldn't code like every day. <laughs> so mm. um, that being said, a lot of my time is spent. Um, in the code editor and I do a lot of my design in the browser. So to be frank, I don't really use Photoshop for anything other than photo manipulation. I'm very much often in sketch if I need to do any interface work. And that's a lot of what I do here is product design and interface work. So once I, once we have like the basic layout and gist of what's, what we're going to do, I can go straight into code because we already have like styles in place. We have a framework set in place. So we don't really need to do any kind of full mockups in Photoshop. So I would say mostly in code. Um, that being said, at work, I've learned Python and Django. So I do a lot of that as well. So I, I don't know if, what that makes me now. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people have that question, but you're definitely a multi... It makes you highly employable. Super useful, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it's the answer. <laughs> But that's, that's a great. you know that's the that's the the double threat if not triple threat being design plus front end development which is the you know uh, web designer part to me and then and then when you mix in back end stuff I guess it's a unicorn even though I just you know nothing against unicorns I'm sure beautiful creatures <laughs> but uh, it's just kind of a cheesy name anyway. <laughs> yeah I don't call myself a unicorn I think it has like a negative connotation. That's why my title is really long and awkward. <laughs> why can't it be something like a kraken or something? <laughs> I'm a kraken. I'm a mythical beast that shows up to destroy things because <laughs> I design and develop. That's yeah, I don't know. But I mean, it kind of brings up an interesting point where it's like, yeah, skill set is really important, but you know, you're going to be a person who is contributing to like a product. So I wonder if we should start like revolving titles around like doing something on a product rather than just like worrying about like do you do back end do you do front end? It's like well no I'm helping you build your bottom line and you know building your product. 
Yeah. I, do you know, did you ever watch the Jetsons growing up? And, uh, and like, no. Okay. <laughs> like, I know what it is. is. I just never really watched right. it. Well, this guy, George Jetson, had a job where he made cogs at a cog factory. <laughs> like, he was a cog in the cog factory. It's a metaphor. Metaphor. But not really, because uh, he really did make cogs. He really did make cogs. Uh, I think that is awesome. <laughs> like I can I just make cogs and like think that's super cool and fulfilling for my life. You could make artisanal uh, cogs if you move to Brooklyn. Artisanal. Yeah. Handcrafted, whittled cogs. vintage cogs. Yeah, vintage. Mm-hmm. I got weathered. <laughs> I got this wood from outside of town in a small town and I reclaimed the wood. For for the cog. <laughs> Are you going to wear a lumberjack outfit too? Yeah, I'm wearing a plaid <laughs> shirt. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a American steel, which I found from Philadelphia. <laughs> reclaimed it. <laughs> All right. So the web, hey. what Nicole's website is NicoleDominguez.com. It, uh, there's a, there's a couple of posts about Jekyll on it, which leads me to believe the site is probably Jekyll. Yes, and actually, if you go to the bottom, there's a link to the source of my website. Oh, that's oh, pretty cool. Nice. Um, that's yeah. It's not. I, I mean, so it's is it on GitHub Pages too, or? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's kind of like why not? If it's if it's in Jekyll, it's like free, fast. Yeah. End up hosting. I'll take it. Yeah, I'm still shocked that like I can push to GitHub and have it show up in like ten seconds. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that was easy. It almost makes me like miss FTP. I don't know. I get really like nostalgic about all the things from back in the day, like FTP. And like, if you wanted to make a background, you had to make the image in Photoshop and like stretch it all the way down. And now you have a column, you know? I guess the I guess like the argument there is like, but but where are your your the sites that you worked on with FTP now? You know? Oh, that's That's right. They're gone. Yeah. That's very uh, true. Not that this, you know, is guaranteed either way, but that's kind of interesting. Uh, looking, at, I, I think it's fun when you, when you're trying to like figure out what kind of what, what built the site, and you view source, and you look around, and you're kind of looking for like hints that yeah. you know, of what the site is built on. It's, it's kind of hard to tell a Jekyll site, and the tell is usually that there is no tell. Exactly. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, like I find myself like view like viewing the source to like all the websites I visit just to see like what they did and like how it looks. I don't know, especially like on April Fool's yesterday, I, any site that I went to that was a joke, I've read the source to see if there was any like other joke in the code and mm-hmm. like, there wasn't, but I thought there would be. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I can smell a WordPress site or a Drupal site. I can just smell it. Yeah. Right I, through the screen. I, I feel it. I didn't even yeah. have to use source. Oh. I smell it. There, there is a Chrome extension that tells you what site is built in, and I don't know how it knows, but like it'll like say this site uses it's heuristic stuff. No, yeah, and look just reads the code and finds out and looks at probably DNS stuff. I don't know. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, um, I was thinking that it. I've been looking at like uh, SVG stuff a lot lately, and looked at lots of different software that outputs in you know .svg format. And all of there's not one example that like outputs SVG without leaving a mark, without it being like this SVG was produced by Hydra, <laughs> you know, in, in point three. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, 
And Jekyll's yeah. like the only, it's one of the only, so, uh, this one like huge plus one is that it doesn't do that. It doesn't, there's not even a setting, you know, the, maybe there is some, but I kind of doubt it that, it, that it doesn't leave its mark. When it compiles it, it just compiles it, shuts up, doesn't say nothing. Yeah, exactly. Um, speaking of SVG, do you have any tools that you use to like compress SVGs? I always find myself like deleting the comments and like getting the file to as small as possible when I use SVGs. Oh, you like open it in, in a text editor and go yeah. in there and... Pull or like stuff out. Yeah, I I found a tool that's like archaic, but I use it anyway because it's the best one I fa- found that will like get rid of certain properties for you and like get rid of things that you won't need. But you can do it like while seeing the live SVG because sometimes if you edit something, it'll just get really messed yeah. up. That sounds like the Peter Collinridge one. Yeah, maybe, I think that, that's what it is. Yeah, there's a that one's neat. I think because it's uh, it's his own craft like he it's a different engine behind it i think but the like the uh you should just google svg omg is kind of similar but new and it's based on svgo and svgo is kind of the more i don't know wider used one but it has the svg Oh, it's just a command line tool. And then there's a couple of different, you know, there's like a grunt version of it and a gulp version of it. This SVG OMG is Jake Archibald's uh, graphical version of it. So you open the SVG and you can do all the settings while you're still looking at the SVG. And that can be particularly important because some of the settings that you change might affect the look of the SVG. Hopefully it doesn't, but it's kind of nice to have proof positive that it doesn't, you know. Yeah, especially if you have like a complicated SVG. Oh my! You're exactly right. Yeah. How uh, like do these like change the IDs? That was my big problem with like SVGO. It like ripped out all the IDs by default. <sighs> or See, it, it definitely you- shouldn't, or, or there should be an option to have it do that or not, or maybe well, it's detecting duplicates. I don't know. That in with Peter Collinridge's tool, there's an option to remove it or not. Um, okay. So it just depends like what tool you use and if it gives you those options. This is a big one that that I, I don't think is talked about enough. Is one of these all of these optimizers either strip away some precision from the numbers. So imagine, you know, you're drawing a polygon and there's math in SVG, you know, and it might be like, you know, move from point. Zero zero to one point seven three two to nine point eight one eight or something, and that's three decimals of precision, mm-hmm. uh, which is nice kind or or whatever. It's just more accurate, you know. It's kind of like having lots of digits in like your floated columns or whatever when they're not equal. You do the math and you give the browser as much precision as it needs. But precision means file size. And these tools are built to reduce file size. So one of the options is, well, trim it down, you know, do some rounding on those numbers and strip out some of the precision. And I think that's a little weird because it's like precision is very, very arbitrary. If the artboard that you drew the SVG on is from 00 to 1010, or it's from 00 to 10,000, 10,000, it doesn't really matter. It's a little arbitrary. So, like, what you could have just as complex of an SVG in either one of those canvases, mm-hmm. but one of them is going to require a bunch of decimals of precision to be as accurate as the other one. So, it's like because it's so arbitrary, I don't think we should be like optimizing, just stripping away 
precision arbitrarily, you know? Like, it's nice that that's an option, but, like, uh, it should always be a one-off choice based on the SVG you're looking at. There's no way to know mm-hmm. what you're stripping away. And I think that's the point about complexity is complex SVGs tend to have smaller detail that end up getting ripped away by the thing. Yeah. Oh, that was a tirade, was <laughs> Yeah, I kept I was like wondering if you were gonna ask a question with that. I was like, uh no, where is this just, going? I just mean don't strip away precision for no reason is my whole right. point there. Well I think it depends on like how complex your SVG is. Like, you know, you could just have like a very simple shape or you could have like a very complex logo. It just depends on like yep. what you what you're trying to accomplish. Yep. It's complexity, but <laughs> But the size of the canvas it was originally drawn on is the ultimate factor of of decimal precision, how much it matters. And it's a little hard to to drive home. There's no heuristic way to figure that out, really. Uh, okay, so let's do. Uh, we were, I was kind of poking around your your GitHub, which is so you're so devious on GitHub and Twitter. You have a bunch of stuff on both, of course. There's <laughs> uh, badass dev resources is one you push to somewhat. Recently, you have a whole bunch of links in there about emails. Have you been poking around emails lately? <laughs> That's funny. Um, whenever I have like a random idea and I'll like make a repo for it and never touch it ever again. Um, and this is one of those things. <laughs> but yeah, I love HTML email. Well, I used to love it. Now I'm kind of like hating it. But I just, it was like, I think working with HTML email is like a blast from the past. Like you get to do tables and stuff, which. Yeah. It's going to be a really unpopular opinion, but I, like I said before, I just really miss all of the old stuff we used to do. Um, so getting to work with tables kind of fills that void in my heart, I guess. But yeah, I don't know. I like collecting links. I like sharing stuff with people, you know, resources and stuff. I think that's a, a perfectly legit opinion. About it. The thing about emails is that it doesn't feel, it feels nostalgic. It doesn't feel so awful, maybe, in the email land because one of the reasons that we didn't like tables is because they were so like it was hard to make changes in the future to a table because it was so source order dependent and and stuff like that. Like the the problem was the the main maintaining the table mm-hmm. was harder, and you don't have to maintain an email; you send it and then you're done. You know, right? So that factors in, right? Well, our emails at work get really complicated because we have, like, alert emails that get sent out, like, 10,000 of them a day, and they're all, like, different. So it's mm-hmm. all the code is dynamically generated by our systems. Like, that gets pretty complicated. Because um, the con- they, like, transactional emails? You know, like- no, like, um, for Muckrack, we have a service where, like, if, if a journalist mentions your company or your keywords in an article, you get an alert. So, like, that can happen on the fly, right? So, like, we'll never know what the content is when we design for it. So, you just have to, like, assume that it can be really long, really short. Like, you could have, like, like for instance, we had an instance where if the person had an emoji in their article, it would break the whole email. So, uh, that's where it starts to get complicated. Words. Yeah. <sighs> Programming, the worst. Yeah. And, like, a lot of our customers use Outlook on, like, Windows XP. <laughs> So that's also pretty bad. Yeah, it starts to, like, the fun part of email starts to fall away a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So we have a whole bunch of more questions we can get to, but I thought we could do a little bit of uh, 
Uh, <laughs> well, there's that. There's that. There's drama for sure. D- Dave, you have some some news in here, but I thought I would do one. Uh, I think I've said a number of times on the show, like, you know, obviously I work and run the website codepen.io. And then when other websites have .io, I'm always like the best TLD, you know, like, just, <laughs> I don't know, making, make, like giving props to people that use IO. Just, I don't know why, because I think it's a cool one. I didn't really know this at all, but, but I, I mean, I guess I knew that IO is a country code for something, mm-hmm. but it's just like, we're just using it IO because we're nerds and it's input output, you know? <laughs> It's just kind of a fun one, uh, but 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 it's actually the TLD for the uh, I can't even you know I'm the worst at pronouncing them but Ch- Chagos Chagos Archipelago yeah which is a and chain of islands in the Indian Ocean so I think dot io means like Indian Ocean oh yeah perhaps it Possibly. does. Uh, and the you know there's a there's a storied past to this archipelago, and that the UK government was involved at one point and like deported all the native people that lived on these islands and took away their rights to the the, the homeland where they're from. Uh, but for some reason, it still has a TLD, you know, and they they're kind of fighting for their right to go back to this island, which they don't have for some reason. And it's kind of like not a great story. I read up on it enough to know that it's kind of weird that the Money from these domain names when we register them goes to the UK government and not at all to the people who uh, lived there and was their homeland. So anyway, yeah. the, the, there's some good articles that kind of go into it, but the URL that kind of points to it all is called the Dark Side of uh, And I, uh, you know, I put I I donated to the cause and signed up for the thing because you know it just people should know, I guess. It'd be cool if money could route to the right place. I always thought like IO was like some, some like Gaelic spelling of Ireland or something. <laughs> That's how naive I was. I was just like, I think it's, yeah, it sounds European, you know, but I didn't know that it was entangled into yeah, all of this. Neither, neither did I. Kind of misjustice. At least the money could go to the right place, you know? Yeah, totally. Or yeah, like restoring people's heritages that'd be cool that'd be sweet uh well so gonna total i don't know how to segue so (laughs) i'm going i'm going over to a brand new segment okay it's called screen shorts and (laughs) that's a new word that people are saying so this is screen shorts where i talk about an article i saw and i give you a few snippets from it okay so here we go. Today's screenshot is the uh, recent uh, U.S. smartphone use in 2015 study from Pew Internet. Uh, and here are some of the screenshots uh, from the article here. So and this is uh, these, these are all just responsive web design tweets. But here we go. One in 10 Americans, quote, do not have any other form of high speed speed internet access at home beyond their phone's data plan. So one in 10 people only have a phone as high speed internet. Wow. 30% of smartphone dependent Americans frequently reach the maximum amount of data on their cell phone plan. So one in three of us hit our max data on our cell phone plan because you're probably trying to keep it low to save like massive amount of bucks. I mean, isn't the like data plan, like the next jump is like 40 bucks or something usually. 
Um, and then, and then there's kind of a thing like the, there's the baseline, I think plan is like 300 bucks a month. Um, and so if your web page or sorry, the baseline plan is 30 megabyte, 300 megabytes per month of data. And the average web page weight right now is two megabytes. So So, 150 websites a month before you, assuming before you max, right. Uh, only websites. And this is interesting, like in light to me, and I would love to get y'all's opinions in light of this. There's some other hot drama on the owl, awl.com, uh, about how Facebook is going to bring in native uh, stories. Like they're basically going to render New York Times and BuzzFeed articles without going to the website. Yeah, I saw uh, that. Because the websites are taking too long, eight seconds, 10 seconds to load. That uh, was their reasoning kit. of why they wanted to do it. If that's the case, that's interesting, but also kind of like, oh my gosh, you want to do that? So keep them on Facebook, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And they want a, a cut of the, the well. basically the money the advertising bucks and they like give a cut to the New York times or whatever. Oh, so but the New York times can still run their own ads within the content somehow. You'd think that. I don't think so. I think they just, they share Facebook revenues. Ugh. I don't know. Uh, you, Chris, you should get on it. You should get, <laughs> talk to them about CSS tricks. Anyway, it's just, <laughs> so kind I, could, of I would like, do it just to get the information and then share it and then not do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, let's do that. I mean, <laughs> I, I've seen other apps do this, um, and as a, from a user's perspective, I don't think it's that horrible. Um, mm-hmm. Like like being on the train, you know, it's possible to get internet connection down there. So, like, I use uh, an app for my phone called Smart News, and, you know, if I'm just standing there reading the news, it'll it's easier to request just, like, the plain text mm-hmm. from within the app without going to the actual entire web page and loading everything. Um, right. And I almost sometimes would like the option of whether or not I want to do that. Yeah, it does seem sort of like, like, I, That's I'm like, really good point, you know, like, w- w- nobody's against the reader view in Safari and stuff. We all, a lot of people Insta-paper. use Insta- yeah. Instapaper and, and friends, you know, this is sim- similar to that. So kind of what's the problem? Not to mention I freely distribute sites I publish on with RSS, you know, mm-hmm. like that's the same as a reader mode. It's stripped of all of its the advertising shell around it, you know. So yeah. once, but I think what's interesting is that this this mobile stuff is really kind of driving that desire. Like they don't want your people to, you don't want to bounce out and wait 10 seconds or 30 seconds a minute in a subway to like, wait for some dumb article to load. Um, so I, it's, I just, this Pew internet thing is very interesting to me because it's like, I think we as web designers and developers have to kind of keep doing better um, or else like people are just going to be like, cool, they don't have to go to the web because we can do the web better, you know? So I, anyway. <laughs> Did you have more thoughts well, on this, Nicole? Yeah. Um, my other thought is just that there are a lot of sites out there where, like, not only are they not mobile optimized or not responsive, but, like, they'll throw all these pop-up ads in your face. But, like, you're on a mobile device where it's really hard to click out of it. So sometimes if I know it's a site that's not optimized, I'd so much rather just read the plain text without having to just, like, X out of pop-ups and not ever get to the content. And I get frustrated and I leave if I, don't, if I can't 
actually access the content, right? So I think there's a lot of different use cases for um, doing what Facebook is doing, regardless of any kind of like hot drama money making schemes behind it. Uh, so in a sense, people that may not have read your content before now are going to because the experience is so much better and you're screwing it up. It's slow or it's covered in ads or whatever. So that's yeah, exactly. the positive side of it. And then the negative side of it is if my content is only read in in this setting, I can't, my options of monetizing it are lower. Like I might just be – I might just go out of business potentially because – there's no there's no engagement with advertisers that i can sell you know i'm it's that that's the scary part that people think like how how can we do journalism if there's no money in it at all it all just any any way we can monetize it gets stripped away that's the right. the danger i think i should do a sponsor quick hopefully and we'll get into some q and a stuff uh, I want to do Environments for Human, and our longtime sponsors are our uh, Craft CMS. So maybe you've heard of it. It's kind of a uh, uh, God. How, how would you how would you describe it, Dave? Isn't it kind of sort of like a spinoff of Expression Engine, but not really? Or it had similar beginnings. It's like Expression Engine spinoff. One of the kind of core plugin developers from Expression Engine was like, "Dude, I'm making my own," and mm-hmm. it, all my friends who use it. I got quite a few shops here in Austin that use it and love it. Uh, right? It's it's kind love of like it. it's like Stripe or like you know like, you know how it's like just universally beloved. Craft falls into that like everybody who uses it loves it kind of scenario. Anyway, so there's a summit. Do you want? Do you know about it and want to level up? Do you are you involved in the community and want to be more involved in the community? Are you wanting to switch your little organization over to it? Thinking about using Craft, whatever. One, there's a million reasons to want to know more about Craft. You can do that. Go to Craft Summit or CraftCMSSummit.com. It's a one day conference coming up April 22nd. You can, uh, uh, you know, normally these online conferences are super reasonably priced at 170. This one is $99, and then you save 20% off of that with coupon code SHOPTALK. So it's super affordable. Go and level up your ability. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 the founder of Pixel and Tonic but, but behind Craft, Brandon Kelly, is giving the state of Craft too. So this will be the like, do you want to know what's up with Craft? Well, there's no possible better place where you could learn. You know, you're going to get it from the horse's mouth at this conference, which is pretty darn awesome. You know, advanced uh, component management and craft, programming in Twig, craft for content, deep dive into craft plugins. You know, you're going to kind of get it all here. So that's that. Let's do some questions. Okay. B Mac writes in I have a question about finishing up a project. The site is live, the post launch checklist is done. And now it's just a matter of turning the finished files over to the client per our contract. Uh, the site was developed using Git for version control, of course. So uh, the question comes in, how do I turn the files over without potentially damaging the ability to update the site in the future? There's always the danger of the client cowboy coding something in via <laughs> FTP as well. How can I handle this? Thanks. Nicole, have, have you ever had experience handing over a project to a client? Maybe, even, even um, if it's internal, you know. Uh, yeah, I have. Um, I'm trying to think of like a good answer to this, and I don't know if it's ever been a problem of like worrying about what they're going to do. I just feel like if if you set like a good readme file and a good guidelines as to like 
how to update the site and what to do, what not to do, um, and then hand it to them. Hopefully they'll documentation respect. Maybe. Yeah. Hopefully they'll respect what you do. And if they don't, I mean, there's not a lot you can do, but bother them about it or they come to you and ask you what's wrong with it. Um, and that's kind of the nature of working with clients is that, you know, you don't always know if it's going to end up okay. Cause they'll do whatever they want to do. And you just have to hope for the best and do everything you can like writing documentation and hope that it ends up fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was, I would say uh, have a conversation about it. Like, say, hey, we want to talk about maintenance and updates and just how that happens. That could end up being more work for your shop. That might be good. Um, but it, just just to set an expectation. And if they don't follow it, whatever you can't – I mean, clients going to be clients in <laughs> my experience. And so they will do the most terrible things <laughs> to your website. <laughs> They will they will turn text pink if they get the option and and I centered all centered text um in a diamond haiku. Yeah, and maybe the thing to do is like build into your quote internally to like have like a meeting a month after launch just to go over how everything went, talk to them about maintenance, see if there's any problems, and then they can start to bring up any of their concerns and even your concerns about how it's going and if it's all okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some, no, that's good. Like a, like a, what, like a post, post breakup. Post, postpartum <laughs> meeting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you just kind of have Sounds a little, pretty smart. Yeah. Hey buddy, let's go get drinks. The tone of this question feels a little off to me. Kind of, it's like so worried that the client's going to touch their masterpiece was the, the vibe I got. And it's kind of like, it's their site. They paid for it. They hired you to pay for it. Now give it to them and let them do whatever they want. And I know I not like not like ruin it, but like kind of it's kind of like I don't know. It's their money in a yeah. sense. And also like isn't it on you to compel them to not use a pink diamond haiku as a blog post? Like shouldn't there have been some communication? Maybe that's this, you know, along the way that compels them to not do that. Okay, Hello? I don't know. None of Dave's in client services. You'd know more than the rest of us, maybe. Let's do another question. Are we still? Are we ready? Uh, Matia Maroknik writes in, and and I hope we got your name right, Matia, this time. Uh, I have a question about tabular data. Tables have a limited styling capabilities, uh, so sometimes you need to use divs instead. Uh, is that bad practice? Can you do something to improve semantics accessibility? Also, uh, should you order your divs in rows or columns then? Mm. I have lots of real thoughts on this. <laughs> I, let's get down. Let's it's, go. It's funny because like two days ago, I was tweeting asking about like what people thought about like tables and stuff um, for this exact purpose. My ended up like sending out a screenshot that I was working on because I'm building like a new part of our, um, like a new feature for our site. Mm-hmm. So, and I have this, have lots of tables and I have all this content that should hopefully, you know, be done in a table, but it's like super hard to get it to even do what I want it to do. So I finally ended up caving and just using divs. And I thought for like, you know, I put some thought into like, should I do this? Is it, is it semantically correct? Like, is it Okay. And at the end, I just gave up because 
I would rather have the control of having really great styles and having the experience be what I be really great rather than like succumbing to what a table um, can do because it's just so limited in, in its ability and it, it you almost don't know what you're going to get sometimes if, if your content is um, dynamic at all. Mm-hmm. So those are my mm-hmm. thoughts. Yeah, that's, you know, it'd be interesting to see the exact situation here because it says, you know, there's limited styling capabilities. Well, what do you mean exactly by that, Matias? Certainly there are things that you just straight up can't apply to a table cell. Like, for example, or example, you can't, uh, uh, you used to not be able to relatively position a table cell. And I think you can apply it now such that you can absolutely position things inside of table cells, but that's relatively new and you can't do, you can't like nudge them around. So you can't like do top two pixels or anything to an individual table cell. So there is limited styling capability. You also can, regardless of which one you use, you can force them through CSS display properties to behave like each other. So you can make a bunch of divs act like display table and display table cell and row and all that stuff. And likewise, you can take a table, a TD element or whatever and force it to behave like a div if you want to through display properties. So you can kind of switch them back and forth. So I'm not sure which styling capabilities you particularly mean, but then it, it comes up sometimes for sure. And then there's things like, what about like I want this first row of of in a you know first cell in a in a column to be like I don't know fifty percent as wide as the table, but then not wrap and uh, have overflow such that it uses the like ellipses and like so, some stuff is 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 pretty tough. If you haven't heard of tape table layout fixed, that's one to look at too. That kind of forces style a little bit. But there's just it's kind of a lot to talk about, but so you ended up going with divs. Did you did you float them all, or did you end up using display table cell, or what was your situation? Um, well, I'm actually still in the process of building it. Like I'm like after this podcast, I'm going to continue building. Oh, so I'm nice. not entirely sure what I'm going to end up doing, but um, I ended up just like using our standard grid and like making. What I did was I made a row, and then I made cells within the row. So it's going to be like. A million divs but i think i'm okay with that <laughs> yeah. um just because i am going to do a lot of complicated things and it's i would much rather be able to control how it all looks and how the person kind of flows through the experience than having to like hack a table that may or may not work for everyone but yeah in terms of his question i just it's kind of some it's a decision you have to make on a case-by-case basis depending on what you're doing with your content and if it like, is it dynamic or not? You know, like, are you going to have to change a lot in the future? Like, do you need to do crazy things inside of it? All that kind of stuff. Yeah. Another one I often consider is CSS can certainly style it either way, but are you certain that where that content goes has CSS? There's a lot of times content means that it's going to end up in an email or it's going to end up in RSS or whatever. And if you don't have CSS available to you, that means whatever HTML you use controls your layout. So, you know, a table will look a lot more table-like without CSS if you use table elements, whereas a bunch of divs are just going to be all, you know, blocks on top of each other. Right. Yeah, I was going to, like, my bar is like, do I, does this thing need to look like a spreadsheet? Like 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 a an Excel yeah. component. Is it tabular and then, data? 
then I use a table and, uh, you know, the, the thing, one thing people like to use it for is like pricing charts or something like that. And, and that's totally fine. I, I think it would fit. That's, a long, it, that's on the line. Yeah. But that, that's where I'm like, if you're trying to just shoehorn something in, I mean, that's tough. Uh, like that, that's tough. I would maybe rethink the design a bit, but, um, uh, there is some like accessibility benefits, you know, if you ran this through a screen reader and a table and a bunch of divs, they would kind of behave differently. Like, right. And uh, it doesn't mean tables, bad divs, good. It, sometimes yeah. a table can be better for accessibility if it's tabular data for. Yeah. 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 And then, I mean, so that's like, and then the rows versus columns, like uh, Nicole, you went with rows. I mean, it, it's great. It just, I don't know if you're worried about it, run it through a screen reader and, or, or just read it out loud yourself going horizontally. And then that's probably what you'll get. I think close. So that was interesting stuff. We'd be interested to see how your, how it ends up and what, what you did as I love these situations, right? Where you're like, I'm trying to decide what is the best semantics for it while trying to pull off a design. So did you have to make compromises or did you nail it or whatever? I'd love to, so and if you were able to use a DL element, uh, you get a trophy. Yeah. That's, that's the little right front the end mail. thing. Yeah, Tim yeah. Berners Lee signs a trophy. And says, yeah. <laughs> that that actually crossed my mind the other day when I was trying to decide what to do, and I'm like, oh, DLs, DDs, yeah. But then no, I'm like, oh, well, I'm not really defining anything, so it doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best. I, I I think that's the most common use case for a, for a DL is like, oh, this is perfect. Oh, wait, just kidding. I always yeah. I always talk myself <laughs> out of it too for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the most common questions that we get ever on the Shop Talk show is how do I, for whatever reason, we've gotten so many of these over the time. People develop locally at WordPress sites. I'm going to do a sponsor now. I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't cue the, the cool backbeat music. But the, uh, uh, how do I keep my local WordPress install in, in sync with my live database? Because, of course, I like to develop locally uh, and, and work on my WordPress site locally and then push those changes live. That workflow is great. But there's now my local site is way out of date with all the new content up there, all the new images, all the stuff that people are working on. Sometimes I need to design around the current state of the live site. How do I pull that state down? Well, you could do anything with computers. You could go in there and, you know, MySQL dump some SQL and, you know, W get that file and then bring it down and hopefully the character set is correct and run the SQL locally and do all that kind of work. But you have to be a huge nerd to do all that. (laughs) (laughs) Or you could uh, use the plugin WP Migrate. DB Pro. It's by Delicious Brains. It is a fantastic product. I use it on all my WordPress sites to do that exact thing. We had a question come in from Andrew Frank who said that we've established over and over that WBDB Migrate Pro is awesome and the best way to keep local and production data prices in sync. But do you know of a plugin that keeps your uploads, you know, the things in your WP Media Library up to date, like images, PDFs, and other files. How do you keep that stuff in sync? You know, DB Pro just does your database. Well, it's not exactly true. WP Migrate DB Pro does that too. It is an add-on that you get automatically with a developer license Excellent. to keep all your, your your that stuff in sync too. So check out deliciousbrains.com slash WP Migrate DB Pro. Literally, it's one of those, it's another one of those things that falls into that bucket where it's just universally loved. 
people just stay in. It's just one of those plugins that's just like, yep, this is how it should have been done. Enjoy. Wow. Uh, let's talk about Jekyll and GitHub for a minute because we all have a little bit of experience with that. And it's related and this is interesting. Matt <laughs> Tias writes in, how do you deal with assets in GitHub Jekyll setup? So there, there's three options as Matt sees it. One is just keep them in GitHub and to hell with it, he says. For, but for me, this seem, uh, for me, assets are things like images, assets like PDFs, zip files. Uh, so, so do you just keep them in your repo along with the site? And he says this seems like uh, seems wrong, and it will grow out of control very quickly. Which you know, because Git isn't very good at dealing with binary data or whatever you call that. Uh, so, some sort of uh, uh, number two, some sort of Git sub module setup, which he doesn't quite understand. But you know, I guess I I don't either. But some kind of like other repo or other place to keep. Things like assets, and three use a use a Git ignore on the images folder entirely or the assets folder entirely, uh, and just back them up somewhere else manually every so often. You know, so just keep all your assets out of the repo, but just have some other kind of backup solution for them. So he said he's going with number three uh, as 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 he goes, but but how do you do that? But then how do you you know if you're Git ignoring it, how do you deploy a new blog post and Jekyll with an image in it, for example. Mm. Mm. Uh, I know that's complicated. (laughs) It does a little bit, but you know, so you're blogging in Jekyll, you have an image as a part of a blog post is what's what, what does people mostly do? Like, do you ever use images in your blog posts or, or on any Jekyll page, Nicole? Like, um, so for me personally, a lot of the Jekyll stuff I do is, very much like small sites, personal sites, stuff that like I don't really need a lot of assets for. Um, I don't blog very often, and if I do, there's not an image. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I definitely see how like it's a concern if you're building like a, a larger website or if you do use a lot of assets. Um, what I could probably see working is like somehow using a tool that will allow you to push to like an Amazon server. Um, there might be like oh, yeah, a Jekyll plugin that will take your assets folder and like upload it to an Amazon server and replace it when it compiles. Um, we do that in production on our Python site. There may be something similar um, for Jekyll. I can't see why not. Yeah. That, yeah. That you sounds could- smart. What what I've kind of done is is I'll do a, a reference to that URL or like the image slash images slash whatever, and you can ignore that folder, but it, you have to make sure it syncs up to something, um, and then use the the bar like vertical bar uh, prepend your bucket name or whatever. So like you can like prepend URLs uh, if you want, and then. So it's like you see like a clean file name or it could just be the whole S3 bucket name for, for assets if you wanted. But that, that takes a little bit of management. Um, but that would be the best way probably to just manually upload. I use Transmit. You guys use that? It's from Panic. Mm-hmm. Um, Is that FTP? <laughs> yeah, it's FTP. Uh, we love FTP uh, in this episode. Loving we FTP do. right yeah. now. Uh, and you – it. So it's a FTP thing and it'll just hook up to your S3 and you can just be like plop, 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 drop things in your buckets. Or so I wonder if it's possible to do like a Git hook where every time you push, it will like send your assets 
to a place. So you don't Ooh. have to do it manually. The, yeah, like a pre-commit hook kind of thing? Or yeah, or even like a post-commit. Yeah, something that just does it automatically. Because like, I just can imagine like someone forgetting to do that. So setting it yeah. up where it's an automatic process um, seems like it'd be cool and save you time and effort. Totally. I, mean, I think the initial setup might be a little difficult and like finding something that will do it for you. But the technology of, you know, post commits or post get yeah. post hooks exist, you know, and so do Amazon servers and so do CPN. So what's cool the, about that the, is one person has to do it, you know, like one person who geeks out on that kind of thing and then they can blog about it and share it and then we can all use it, you know. So it was hard for one person to figure out, but it's the beauty of the Internet. Yeah, and for all we know, there could be something that exists that we just don't know about. Oh, surely there is. Yeah. We're always yeah. Well, and in, in there's, I mean, part of the challenge, though, is that GitHub pages, gitpages.io or whatever, um, they, it, it doesn't allow you to run plugins, which is kind of the usually like, I wrote a plugin, you put it in plugins and it works and fixes this. But GitHub doesn't, like if you're hosting on their GitHub pages, it doesn't allow plugins. So. Um, but if you're self-hosting, you could just self-host on S3 or something like that if you wanted. Yeah, this has been solved. But I'm glad you're even thinking about it, Matt, because I think most people may not even consider it, really. And I'm not sure what the negatives, like, does GitHub care how big your repos are? Maybe they don't, you know, like maybe it's not a big deal. But I, it does seem to make sense that you would keep your PDFs and zip files out of your GitHub repo, and it just seems like it's Git isn't meant to do to deal with those things really. And so, like for example, like uh, you know the classic examples: do you put your PSDs in there or whatever? Git Git doesn't know how to diff a PSD. It's like not appropriate thing for it. Like it, it just it just gives up on it. And so every time it's changed even a little bit, it's a whole nother copy of that PSD. It's an entirely like it's a ten megabyte PSD. Every time you update any change at all to it, it's another. It increases the size of that GitHub GitHub repo by ten megabytes because it won't diff it. Whereas otherwise, all it does is store the change in the file. You know that's kind of the magic of diff and Git. Anyway, maybe just don't worry about it if it's a small site. I mean, uh, Dave, do you worry about it? Don't you just you just link it up straight from your repo? Probably right. Yeah, I mean, I I just save everything like i put everything in my github for for most of the sites i do but like the image assets if it's like a core image asset yeah like 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 your icon system go ahead and put it on your blog like in your repo but if it's like you know a big picture of a beach with an umbrella to make your blog post more inspiring maybe that's just on s3 somewhere yeah, uh, it's like GitHub I, almost encourages leaving it in the repo because it's CDN'd up, you know? Whereas yeah. if you hosted it somewhere else on another server or something, it's probably not on a CDN. Mm. All right, mm. let's see. Should, do we have time for one more here? Yeah, if Nicole has time. To, Nicole, are you good for one more question? Yeah, sure. Okay, uh, let's do... Let's see. Chris, do you have one? Uh, Nicole, well, do you I'll do, do this. animations? We'll just do this Ryan S one. Why why not? Uh, sure. Lately, I've been using the CSS checkbox hack to toggle styles of HTML elements. For example, clicking a menu dropdown or clicking a help icon to display an information pop up. Should I use uh, JavaScript instead, or is it safe to keep these minor interactions in HTML and CSS? I work in a team, so I don't want to hand over 
sloppy code. So just for background, the, the checkbox hack Ryan is talking about probably is that one where you use an uh, in, uh, input element, input type equals checkbox, and there's a cool CSS selector called checked. It's a pseudo selector, so colon checked that uh, uh, is, you know, it matches if the checkbox is checked and doesn't match if it doesn't. And you can actually, you know, do some tricky stuff with that because mostly because of the fact that in CSS there's these plus, you know, the direct sibling combinator or whatever it is and the squiggly one, the general sibling combinator. So if you hide the little checkbox, use a label element to tr- to trigger the checkbox being checked or not, and then use one of those sibling things, basically you can add click interactivity onto a site with, without using any JavaScript at all. It's basically on or off, mm. which is neat. But what, is, it, is that acceptable? Like, is, there, is that semantically appropriate? Is it accessibility appropriate? Is it sloppy or not? Have you ever used that idea, Nicole? Um, not with an input because I don't think it's appropriate for like a production level environment where you, you know, you have lots of people using your site. I just think it's, I would say the only time it's appropriate is like in a code pen where it's like for fun, like Mm -hmm. you can make something really cool and like, look what I did without JavaScript. Um, otherwise like, unless you have a good reason not to use the few lines of JavaScript that that would take, it seems like. It could break some things. It's kind of complicated and confusing if you're if right. there are people on your team who don't know how to use that hack because it is a hack. Um, yeah, it's certainly not what it was intended to be used for. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, I'd be careful if if someone was doing that just to think through all of the things that could happen. Yeah. Isn't this this comes from Ryan S? Isn't could it be Ryan Snedden who made the checkbox hack? Uh, who like popularized it? <laughs> I doubt course. it, but maybe. Well, um, anyway, yeah, that's I, right. It was his idea, right? He, I think he made a a tree menu or like a you know where you could like ex- expand and collapse folders out of it. That was one of the early demos of this kind of thing. I'm really I'm more on the fence with it. Like it seems like a bad idea to use a form element for something like that. But isn't it good to have like functionality available even when JavaScript doesn't load? And like a, an input outside of a form element anyway, can't you isn't there like accessibility roles you could apply to it to kind of make sure that it's ignored anyway because it's just for visual purposes? Like I'm starting to come around on the idea that well, I would put it in the hack category. There's some benefits strong enough to using it without enough negatives that it kind of like is starting to be more appealing to me. Especially if you maybe you put it in your design pattern library too. So even though it's hacky, you're still like communicating its use well. I don't know. I'm, maybe I'm just talking myself into it because I think it's neat, but. I do declare a form element that <laughs> that changes the state of a web page without a call to the server. I Not in my that. corner of the internet. That is an abomination. <laughs> I, I do declare. I would never. Listen that to is, Nicole. She's probably correct about <laughs> that. <laughs> that is just too much. That is No, I. it's fun. I don't think I can ever sign off on it. Where I do like checkboxes, I like I like for like favorite buttons. Like was it favorited? Like checkboxes. Oh, yes. So there's some, because some, because it feels better semantically to you. It's just neat. Yeah. I don't know. It's just neat. But anyway, it doesn't. Or I'm also into this data state 
equals some binary number oh, on or off. Totally. That's kind of cool. Love that one. I think like another that. use case would be like for prototyping. Like if you were designing like a complicated interface and you had like a dev team that would build it out, if you were just prototyping like the interaction oh, and what should sure. happen, like that's probably a good use case. Because you know it's throwaway code or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Right. And and I guess it's like is you know, are you how are you managing state? That could be like a whole other that's a that's a conference talk. That's a whole <laughs> conference maybe. But like, you know, is checkbox checked, does is that how you're managing state? Is that acceptable in your your I guess style guide of of how you're managing state? Um, you know, it maybe that's fine. Maybe that's Maybe you give it a really good ID element, like show content checked. Great. It's, <laughs> that, I mean, I don't know. I could be talked into it, I think, is what I'm getting at. But but not web standards, Southern Gentleman, not Colonel <laughs> WB. I think standards. CSS should help us with it. Yeah. Yep. State, yeah, I, think there was, I think it's been looked at a little bit, like state, some kind of way to manage arbitrary state in CSS. It's been hinted at. I can't remember the specifics. Wow. Uh, okay. Well, well, that was a fascinating episode. I like it when we was, get to dig into front end nerdery. Pretty great, Nicole. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, we'll wrap it up here. How before we go? How can people follow you? Get in touch with you. Uh, give you money, and then what's one thing you'd like to plug before the end of the show here? Um, I'm pretty big on Twitter. I'm not big. I just tweet a lot. Um, you can find me at So Devious. Um, other than that, just my website. I don't know if I have anything to plug. I guess the oh. Shorty Awards. It's coming up. You can live stream it online. Nice, really? On April 20th. Wow. Are you? Cr- is it crunch time? Or are you guys super prepared? Or? Um, it is crunch time, and we are getting prepared. <laughs> <laughs> nice. yeah. uh, so for Chris and I to accept our award, do we just fly up there or I, i'm still confused how it all works. i just i don't know i'm mm, okay well short awards check it out april 20th that's yes. great um all right well thanks everybody for listening thank you chat room for coming out you guys always supply us with the greatest facts in the world and thank you for downloading this in your podcatcher of choice be sure to vote us up star heart or whatever it is just so that people can find out about the show uh we really appreciate it if you hate your job head over to shoptalkshow.com slash jobs and get a new job because companies are hiring your your creed of person it's like sawhorse uh, is hiring a product designer Yes, I was going to plug that. I forgot. Thank mm-hmm. you for reminding me. We'll put it in the show notes. Well, there you go. Sawhorse is hiring. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. And Chris, do you got anything else for us here? Well, just really that com. <laughs>